Our scripture reading this morning will be from Matthew 19 through 34. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Adam. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we feel the constant tug, the persistent tethering of our hearts to the things of this world. We, We have to have food to eat clothes to wear, a place to live. These necessities are required for our existence, and yet the collection of them is not only about us surviving. In many cases, it's about receiving approval, esteem, status symbol, a statement that we've arrived. Lord, we acknowledge that a new piece of technology can on the one hand, make our life easier, and in another case, make us more in bondage. We acknowledge to you today that a new outfit, a new car, a new job makes us happy. And sometimes, if we're honest, it works better than you do in our lives. Not that you don't have the power to be better, but our emotions are more easily swayed by stuff than they are by the Savior. And so we pray that in a culture that is just bereft of materialism and consumerism, that you would 
set our sights today on heaven and our real treasure and what it means to really pursue righteousness from the inside out. So help us, Lord. This is personal. It's practical. It's the real world in which we live. And we thank you for your word and ask you to use it for our benefit, for our growth, and for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So far in our study in the book of Matthew, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 and 6, we've seen two things so far. We're looking at the issue of superficial religion. And in chapter 5, we learn that there's specific sins that Jesus is interested in that relate to the heart, not just on the outside. In other words, real religion is more than not just committing certain sins. The second thing we've seen in chapter 6 is that charitable deeds, while commendable, have to be done for the right reasons. If chapter 5 was about the heart, chapter 6 is about motive. If chapter 5 is about the reality of what we do in terms of sin, chapter 6 is about how we do things and have the right heart perspective and the right motives when we do them. So that's been the first journey through this Sermon on the Mount. Now next week, you need to know we're going to take a break, five weeks, and we're going to look at a subject about relationships. And we're going to try and figure out how to do relationships better. The title of the series, if you remember, is How to Kill Relationships and Irritate People. And next week, our first message is going to be the first thing that you need to do to just kill relationships and irritate people is be full of yourself. And so we're talking about pride. And, uh, of course, nobody struggles with pride. Uh, and it's a, a, a thing that we all have in check. And so I want you to come so you can help your friends. Okay, so <laughs> that's starting next week. Today, we're looking at this issue of treasure. And the question that we're going to look at today, a third category, not just sins relate to the heart, good deeds relate to motive, but here's the third category. It's this. It's in the form of a question. What are you living for? Think with me. What's your purpose? What, what, What are your goals about? What motivates you? Let me put it this way. What do you spend time on? What do you spend money on? What do you spend energy doing? Because those are the things that relate to your goals. Or you can think of it this way. What is your orientation in life? Is it Godward or is it earthbound? Are you seeking to advance a kingdom that's not on this earth or are you so in love and enamored and captured by things of the earth but the reality is you have more of an earthly perspective. Now, verses 19 to 34 taken together show us that real righteousness is about a bent of the heart, about an orientation to the kingdom. It means that getting real requires living for the right goal. So write that down. Getting real means living for the right goal. And what we're going to see today is that Jesus uses this idea of treasure and then he uses this idea of worry to press on the issue of what are you really living for. And there is nothing like money, the presence of it, or the absence of it to press on what are you really living for. I am thankful for the last year and a half, two years, whatever it's been, that we have been in this environment nationally in an economic downturn because it has unsurfaced, surfaced, uncovered the reality that we too often live for the wrong things. It has revealed our tethering to the earth and the things of the earth. And what Jesus says is that real righteousness, while Jesus isn't against stuff, he's against living for stuff. 
And the question that we all have to think about this morning is what are we living for? We'll look at that in two ways. First is this. I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I living for God or for gain? Two paths. Am I living for God or for gain? And the first way we see this is this issue of treasure. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Skip to verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, there are few things that are more personal and there are a few things that are more defining than what we do with our money. And Jesus targets here the issue of money. He talks about treasure. Now, treasure includes money, but it's also even more than that. Money's the kind of the fundamentals, the basics, but treasure includes a lot more. The word can mean anything that is deposited, anything that is stored, anything that is accumulated. So money is often tied to those things because money buys the stuff that we store. It buys the stuff that we accumulate. It it, it is the thing that we deposit or it buys the stuff that we then deposit. So you can think of treasure as the stuff of life that we desire, that we want, that we work for. It could be possessions, stuff, assets, valuables. Here's one, bling bling, okay? Like, what's that? Go ask your kids. You could think of it in terms of anything that you work to get. Because money is a vehicle that brings us promotion, can bring esteem, praise, and glory. So treasure is not just money. It's all of that. It's the stuff on earth that we want. So climbing the corporate ladder can be treasure, the the praise of other people. And and oftentimes, money is associated with that. So you you buy a vehicle, and in the back of your mind, you're not just thinking about the good gas mileage. You're thinking about how you're going to look going down the road. Right? You're thinking about how you're going to look in the kind of the environment, pulling up to the sales office. Whoa, nice ride. That's what we're thinking about. That's why you fix your muffler before you go to fix the sales call, right? That's why, because you want people to think of you in a certain way. Notice that the focus on the treasure is less on the specific than it is its location. Because the problem with the treasure is its orbit or its focal point. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth... And why? Because moth and rust destroy them there and thieves break in and steal them there. In other words, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth because the natural world, the decaying effect of sin and the sinful bent of people's hearts can steal them and take them away. So Jesus isn't against investment. He's against bad investment. He's not against an ambition, a, a pursuit, an aggressive desire to be able to obtain. He's against an aggressive desire to obtain in this lifetime only. Jesus encourages living for heavenly treasure. He's not calling his disciples to be unmotivated, careless, wimpy, or somehow ambitionless. Rather, he's calling for them to have all of those things, ambition and cares and strength, but to do it for a different kingdom. So the location of our investment shows us where our real values are. Because the money that we have and our hearts are inseparable. You know this to be true. The things that you love are the things you spend money on. The things that you enjoy, you buy. 
the, the things that you buy then also create affections for them. So the heart's on both ends. Heart is the thing that leads money, and then once you buy something, your heart goes along with it. Let me show you. Remember the last time you bought something that was major, maybe a, a car or a house? Think of how much time you researched and discussed and evaluated the purchase. How much it consumed your mind and heart. I remember when, I remember when we were building a house and um, we were putting in flooring in the, um, in the main floor, 300 square feet of, of hardwood flooring or veneer flooring, and I was installing it myself. Every time I closed my eyes, including in prayer, all I saw was flooring, you know, because that's all I could think about how I was going to make the next cut. And I literally had to battle it even in my prayer time because I'm thinking about, oh, that's how I could make that cut. No, 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 Lord, help me. So I'm constantly battling the things of the earth. The reality is, is we know that it's true that things can make us happy. And if we're not careful, our hearts will be led down the wrong path and then our hearts will then fund what our hearts desire. And then once the heart has funded what it desires, then the heart continues to maintain it. Think of not only how long you researched your purchase. Remember the morning you woke up, you know you were going to close the deal? Think of how you cared for the purchase. I, I, I never wax a vehicle except when I first buy it. <laughs> Think about how you care for the purchase, how careful you are with it after you buy it, how much you clean it. Think of how much initial happiness. The heart is tied into that. A number of months ago, I had decided that I was, we needed a new vehicle in our home, or a newer vehicle to us, or a different vehicle. So I began researching what kind of car I wanted. I figured out the exact kind of car. And, and then you know you're traveling around the city, and, and you see them everywhere, and you're continually seeing if that one's for sale. You know, you're looking around. and So uh, one day I thought, you know, I'm just going to look on eBay and see what they have. And uh, so, sure enough, there was this, this vehicle on eBay, and um, on a whim, I just was like, well, you know, it's kind of a little bit. I'll just put in a figure that if I got it, I'd be really happy. So I put in the number and pressed bid, walked away. Three hours later, I came back. <laughs> I just bought a car. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, where was it again? Where was it again? Okay, all right. St. Louis, Missouri. Okay, all right. So, And then I'm reading all the descriptions, and this panic is coming over me because um, I didn't know everything about the vehicle. I was, I was thinking about it, but I wasn't really going to buy it. I was just kind of bidding on it. But, yes, you know, you bid and you win. You, it's your car. So then, I, then I'm thinking, okay, Sarah doesn't know about this. So um, it's a problem, too. So... So I, I'm thinking, how, how am I going to do this? Now, my whole heart is consumed with this. So I, I, I thought, okay, here's what I do. So I go in and I say, hey, honey, how would you like to go to St. Louis, Missouri? <laughs> she said, why? I said, because uh, we just bought a car in St. Louis. And she said, from who? How? I said, I, uh, I bought it on eBay. <laughs> and she said, hey, then the questions, bam, bam, bam. Have you driven it? Did you see it? Have you touched it? Have you felt it? I was like, no, 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 no. And she's like, Mark David Vrogop. And now, listen, in my world, when those three words go together, it always means pain. And she said, we don't do things this way. <laughs> I said, I know, but we did, you know. So, <laughs> so I loaded up one of my kids and rented a car, drove down to St. Louis, and I am just filled with fear and worry like what if this thing is a piece of junk and you know what what so it all worked out it was a great vehicle but for the first 30 minutes on the way home our son jeremiah was with me i said son you cannot say a word we have to be quiet because daddy has to listen to the car (laughs) 
And he said, why? And I said, because I want to be sure it's safe to go home, right? So, and so what happens? You buy something, and it just it, it takes over. I was so glad when that thing was done. Because the stress, the worry, the fear, the heart, I was done with this thing. And what Jesus says is, where your treasure is, there's the principle, your heart will be also. So listen, what you spend money on and what you want and what you desire to get brings your heart along. So listen, this is why you have to give. Seriously. Not just a College Park church. This isn't a budget push. This, this is a thing for your heart. The only remedy for materialism and this bent towards the accumulation of stuff that makes us happy is to give. How you handle your money and how you give says a lot about what you really love. So if you don't really think that giving is important, I want you to know that you cannot think that God is important. A lack of giving is one of the surest signs of superficial religion and hypocrisy. To say, you're Lord of my life. But you don't show up in my checkbook. That is superficial religion and hypocrisy. So where is your treasure? That's the first question. The second question is where is your goal? Or what is your goal? Now, look look at this verse, 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Did anybody understand that verse? (laughs) Because when I read it, I was like, what? Why is this here? What does this mean? Okay, here's the thing. If you take out the word I and replace it with the word goal, if you take out the word body and replace it with the word life, it makes a lot more sense. And that's really what the meaning is. I represented goal and body was representing life. So here's how the verse could read. Your goals are the lamp of your life. If your goals are right, your whole life will be full of light. But if your goals are bad, your whole life will be full of darkness. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? That's what, that's what Jesus is saying. The eye was representing goals or the orientation, and the body was representing the whole perspective of your life. And what is Jesus saying here? He's saying this, something that we already know. It is this. If your goals are bad, your whole life is going to be bad. If your goal is to live for this lifetime, it ruins everything. If your goal in your life is just about the here and now, about getting to the top, making lots of money, buying all kinds of stuff your heart wants, making a name for yourself, Jesus says how great the darkness will be. You will climb to the top of the ladder and realize it is leaning against the wrong building. Jesus is not against ambition. He's not against personal growth. He's not against advancement, and he's not against wealth. But he is very much against those who think that these are ends in themselves and see treasure as something that is a mirror to make much of themselves instead of seeing treasure as an opportunity to invest in the kingdom. So we need to be warned here about the goals in our hearts that no one sees. Craving a promotion because of the power it will give you. Buying a car because of the image it presents. 
Financing a home you can't afford because it's what your friends are doing. Longing for the latest technology because of the crowds you'll be in. So again, Jesus isn't against promotion and cars and houses and cell phones, but he's against the lust for personal glory that we connect with the things that we buy and the ladder that we climb. So he says, what's your goal? Why are you here? What's your purpose? Finally, the question is, who's your master? Look at what he says, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, I grew up with a different translation, and I'm more familiar with a little different translation of that verse. Probably many of you are as well. The translation that many of us were familiar with would go like this. You cannot serve God and what? Mammon, right. Now, why mammon? Mammon was just a, a Greek transliteration or English transliteration of a Greek word that was brought into that translation. And the reason why mammon is there is because this isn't the usual word for money. Um, it's, it's a word that refers not just to money. It refers to the God that's behind money. It refers almost to a force that's behind the financial resources. So someone have an NIV translation? Look at the word money. Tell me what's different about that word. What is it? It's capitalized. That's not a mistake. That's by intent. You cannot serve both God and capital M money. He's not just talking about money in your wallet. He's talking about the force, the lure, the pull, the tethering the way in which materialism and consumerism and this this American dream that we live in, this culture that we live in, can become this thing around which our lives orbit. It's not just the keeping up with the Joneses. It is that this thing, this stuff, these possessions, this corporate ladder, this esteem and praise and honor, this can consume our lives. And Jesus says, you cannot serve that system and serve God. You can't. He's pressing on the issue of divided loyalty, spiritual schizophrenia, identifying the impossibility of living this way. Here's how one commentator put it. It's a beautiful quote. You cannot work for God and moonlight for gain. You cannot work for God and moonlight for gain. So Jesus wants us to look carefully at our treasure, our goals, and our master. He wants us to look carefully as to what we are really living for, Again, not because he's against treasure or wealth or money or possessions, but he is against having those things be the sum total for what we live for and having those things be the orbit around which we exist. This is especially important for us as Americans in the 21st century. You know why? Because materialism and consumerism, the whole concept of the American dream, It's part of the cultural air we breathe. And it can wage a war on our souls. I'll give you a few examples. It can lead a three-year-old little girl to throw a tantrum at Target because her mom won't buy her the newest Dora doll. It can cause a teenager to beg and plead and do anything you want so he can just have a cell phone. Because a cell phone now has replaced car keys as a status symbol. 
It can lead a college student to constantly buy the latest technological gadget because he hates being viewed as old school. It can lead a newly married couple to go into debt way over their heads because they can't imagine living below the standards that their parents lived at. It can lead a worn out, depressed mom to head to the mall when she feels down because buying a new outfit really helps. It can lead an aspiring professional to sacrifice his or her ethics and family because he or she is consumed with with making regional vice president. It can lead to buying homes, cars, membership, clothes, jewelries, vacation, education, not because they're necessary, but because of what they will bring us in terms of what people think of us or our own happiness. Let me be clear. The problem, my friends, is not money or stuff. Poor people and wealthy people share the same bent. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, do I live for God or do I live for gain? And so when the promotion is being considered, when the new purchase is on the horizon, when you're looking at your family budget, when you're evaluating decisions that you're making, you have to constantly be asking yourself, why am I doing this? What is the point? And I need to be careful because a little piece of technology, a different car, a new home, a new job brings a measure of happiness. And if we're not careful, that can actually make us happier than our relationship with Christ. And Jesus says, you're not here for stuff. You're here to advance the kingdom. So am I living for God or am I living for gain? Second question is, am I living for worship or am I living for worry? Now, worry is an interesting thing. Verse 25, Jesus picks it up with the word, therefore. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. So, Follow the line of his reasoning. He comes through this issue of treasure, talking about how our orientation needs to be toward heaven, not towards the things of the earth. And then he says, therefore, don't be anxious about your life. What he's doing here is connecting worry and anxiety with the issue of treasure. Or negatively, connecting worry and anxiety with a a decided commitment to pursue gain, not God. Some of you might say, well, I don't really struggle so much with materialism, but I am a worrier. And I would tell you it's the same thing, it's just a different cat, different side of the coin. See, materialism says I want to get this so that I can be happy, and worry is a passive way of doing the same thing. Because you can't do something to get what you want, because there's a gap in your life, therefore you worry because you want control. Materialism wants to be God by buying stuff. Worry tries to be God by thinking about stuff. So why is worry sinful? Two reasons. Worry is sinful because it doubts God's love and his power. Worry is sinful because it says, does God really care? Or worry is sinful because it identifies with this thought of, can God really fix this? Or God, are you on it? Are are you all over this, God? And so what Jesus does is he calls us to see that worry is another expression of living for the wrong goal. So hear me. If you are a constant worrier, I just want to just want to challenge that. If you are a constant worrier, the reason you worry is because you have a wrong orientation in life. You don't know God. 
I mean, you may, you may be saved, you may know the Lord Jesus, you may be, have a right relationship with Him, but you don't know and remember the reality of who He is. And you need to preach to your own heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say that the problem with us is that we listen to ourselves too much. That we, there's a constant stream of communication that we're talking to ourselves and we're allowing ourselves to be talked to ourselves by ourselves. And he says instead we need to talk and preach at ourselves through the word. We need to tell our soul and our heart, be quiet, sit down, listen to the word. You can do that. Lloyd-Jones says, talk rough to yourself, grab hold of yourself, speak truth to your heart, preach to your soul about your earthbound, possession-shackled, materialistic, circumstantially bent heart, and tell that soul, sit down, be quiet, God's in control and He cares for me. Now, in this text, Jesus gives us seven promises that I think are really helpful in combating worry. And I want you to write these down because, or underline them in the notes, because at least a couple of them you're going to have to pray over in the coming days and weeks. I have to do this often and remind myself of these truths. Number one, the first promise is this, that life is more than food and clothing. Verse 25, Jesus says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So what is this truth? Jesus is saying, life is more than what I want. It's more than my possessions. It's more than my stuff. And we have to keep the bigger picture in mind, especially when things break. (laughs) When you get in a car accident, remind yourself, life is bigger than a car. It's more important than just my stuff. Or someone borrows your things. I never understood fully my dad's frustration when I would leave his tools outside. I mean, if it's rusted or it's non-rusted, it still works, right? So as a dad, I understand this, though. So you maybe loan your tool out to somebody, and it comes back, and it's all bent and broken. And you need to remind yourself, life is more than tools, just the way I wanted them. It's more than food or clothing. Jesus is reminding us that there's a lot more to life than stuff. Second thing. Verse 26, you are more valuable than birds. How's that for a thought? Preach that truth to yourself. Get up in the morning, I am more valuable than birds. Yes, all right. But look at, Jesus says that. Look at the birds of the air. It's as though he wants to use a meaningless, pitiful little creature, a little sparrow, and he wants to say, look, Mark, at the birds. See how it doesn't worry? It's not fretting. It's not writing books or reading articles about how to deal with this. It just wakes up, and I take care of that bird, and that little sparrow that you almost just hit in the car, I take care of that that sparrow, Mark. And he says, I will take care of you. So the reference point here is not about your value to birds as much as it is your value to God and his power to take care of you. And so some days when you're filled with worry, man, preach to your heart by looking at birds. Third, worry does you no good. Verse 27, what does Jesus say? He says, and which of you can be, by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life? Bottom line, worry doesn't do a thing. Spurgeon used to say is worry like a rocking chair will give you something to do, but it won't get you anywhere. It's true. It it doesn't do a thing. And the reason that we worry is because it's a subtle assault on God's rule. If you could do something to change the circumstances, you would. But because you can't and you still want to change them, then you have to do something and so you worry. One of the lessons for me with selling a house in Michigan a year ago 
was the fact that there was nothing I could do to fix it. Nothing. Nothing. It's 200 miles away. I'm not even there. I can't even think about all the dynamics. So what's the point? And often I had to remind my heart, there is nothing that you can do about this. And I wish it was, there's nothing I can do about this. Often it was, there's nothing I can do about this. But that truth is very important. Worry does no good. Four. Verse 28. B. Consider the lilies of the field, how they toil. They do not toil or spin. I tell you, Solomon, all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? God overflows with care. Meaning that God has limitless resources and love for his children. He overflows with care for the most meaningless flowers in the field. And the Bible tells us that he cares so much more for us. He will not run out of resources. He won't. Number five. God knows what I need. Verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. So what is he saying here? It means that God knows what we need. One of the lies of the devil, one of the lies of your own flesh, would be this thought. God, do you see what's going on here? Did you see this medical bill? <laughs> and sometimes it's just kind of funny that we even think that way, because it's not like, oh, I didn't know that. God, God knows that. Did you... Did you, did you see that I was laid off? Did you see that there's not been a, an interview in the last three weeks? God knows all of that. And rather than having that be something that makes you frustrated or angry, Jesus calls us to the simple trust that, God, you know what I need. And it means that God will act to supply what we need when the time is best. Listen, you don't control the timing And therefore, we have to simply rest that God knows what he's doing. He's not ignorant of our needs. And when the time is right, he will act. The sixth promise is from verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. God will give you all you need to do his will and give him glory. So God has all the resources needed, and he will give you what you need Be sure that you have all you need to do His will and to give Him glory. He wants to honor those who honor Him, and He will not allow you to go down a slope where you don't have what you need. Whether it's grace to endure, or the financial resources to be able to make it, God has limitless resources, and He is moved to meet the needs of His children when they seek first the kingdom. Some time ago, we were getting ready, I think it was last summer, for our family vacation. And so we had all of the boys um, get their money ready for their, 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 their spending money for vacation. And one of our sons came to us in a panic, and he showed me his wallet. He's like, I don't have any money. I said, well, where'd it go? He's like, it's gone. I'm like, well, you, you had like 20 bucks three weeks ago. Where did it go? He got all quiet. And he said, come here. So I... Didn't know he's going to show me something, maybe a present he bought for his dad or something, I don't know. And so he comes on the corner and he said, you remember that offering for the flood victims in Columbus? I was sitting in church, I had my wallet with me and the offering came by, so I just I took my 20 bucks and I put it in there. And I said, you gave all your money to the offering? He said, 
Yeah, I did. <laughs> I gave it all. I gave it all. I don't have any money for vacation, you know. I mean, what do you think I did? I hugged him. I'm so proud of you. Here's ten bucks. No, here's what I did. I said, <laughs> and I, 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 I said here, here's my, a gift from mom and dad to you for vacation. We are so glad that you responded to the Lord. If a father, earthly father, is moved like that, do you not think that God, your father in heaven, is also moved? So Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and trust that everything you need, he will add to you. Finally, and this is my favorite, there's enough grace for each day. Look look at verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, seriously, I hated that verse for many years. Because I was like, what does that mean? Okay? So there's two times in this text that I've asked myself the question, what does that mean? Because that doesn't sound very comforting. Imagining, imagine my wife sitting on the end of the bed, she's crying, and she says, oh, I'm so worried uh, about tomorrow. And I put my arm around her and say, honey, don't worry about tomorrow. It's going to be really bad. Don't worry, honey. Because that's what it says, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Meaning that there's stuff coming up tomorrow, there's a lot of trouble there, so don't worry. And that doesn't make any sense. You know what Jesus is saying there? Here's what he's saying. He's saying that each day has enough grace for the troubles that you face. So every morning you wake up, you got fresh mercy. you got fresh grace available to you. And it's there, a supply to be able to meet the day's troubles. Therefore, you don't have grace for tomorrow's troubles. So you're supposed to live in 24-hour increments of grace. I wake up, I've got grace for today's troubles. So a cure to worry and how you fight it is to remind your heart, I don't have grace to deal with tomorrow. And when your husband or wife is, is struggling with worry, remind him or her, look, you don't have grace to deal with tomorrow. We'll deal with that tomorrow when we have grace. Because right now, we don't have the spiritual strength the power or the resources to deal with tomorrow's issues. And if I try and deal with tomorrow's issues, I'm living outside of God's supply of grace. And good luck if you live there. Worrying is trying to deal with life's issues without the God-given supply of grace. So these seven promises are given so we can wage a battle with worry. I want to encourage you to get tough with yourself when it comes to worry. I want you to pray through these promises. Remind yourself. Say, Lord, help me. This worry is sinful. It isn't doing a thing. I know I can trust you. I have everything I need. I want to do your will. And I believe that there's enough grace for what I face today. Some of you, today, you have to say that. You have to pray that. At the end of the service, you have to get with a counselor and say, help me, pray this over me. Lord, help me. I believe my worry is sinful. And it's time to say, I trust you. I know some of you are walking through a dark season. You're wondering about how are we going to pay the bills? How is this going to all going to work out? And I can't promise you that you're going to have everything you want, but I can tell you, you will have everything you need by God's grace during and exactly the right moment in his time. Secondly, when worry comes, use the temptation to worry as a reminder what you really live for. When worry floods your soul, remind your heart. My heart, God, is so weak. I am so filled with anxiety. I renew my commitment today to live for you, for your glory, and not my own. Help my joy be in you, not my circumstances. Help me to live for worship, not for worry. 
You see, there is a connection, beloved, between worry and this penchant for gain. They're rooted in the same soil. Worry and the lust for gain reflect the tethering of ourselves to the earth, living for the wrong kingdom, and both of them in different ways beg the same question. What in the world are you living for? For some of you, you're living for the wrong goal. And the action step from the day, i got to start giving. Others of you, that's not your issue. The issue is worry, and your action point is to say, look, my worry is because of the wrong goal, that money, possessions, and circumstances are not the real problem. In fact, if you got more money, if you found a new job, if you sold your house, you got a raise, if you got out of debt, it's not going to solve a thing because the problem isn't all of those things. The problem is the goal, and the goal is how you got into those problems in the first place. So Jesus came to reorient our hearts. He came to bring us into a right relationship with God by his sacrifice for our sins. And, and when someone receives Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, they live for a new king. That's what it means to live for treasures in heaven. It means that when you receive Christ and you give your heart and life over to him, that you see everything through a lens of Jesus. And that's also why if you've never given your heart and your life to Christ, you will always be living for the wrong things. You will try a new job, a new relationship, a new city, a new hairstyle, a new technology. But listen to me, it will never satisfy you. And that is why you will never be free from worry if you don't know Jesus. In fact, to be blunt, you should be worried. Because you're living for the wrong reasons. And you're not under the beautiful protection of God's sovereign and providential care. Your sin causes you to be under his judgment. And it may just be that all the financial issues in your life are there to awaken your soul that your real problem is not money, it's not the job. It really is you are living for the wrong God. Real religion means you live for the right goal. It means that you let the shackles of earthly goods and the stuff that holds you go. It means that you say, I believe in you, Christ. I want you to come into my heart. I want you to reorient the, the desires of my heart. I want you to live for a different kingdom. I want you to help me to live for a different kingdom so that I will realize from the depth of my soul that getting real at the foundation of who I am means that I live for the right goal. And it also means that when uncertain times come, Difficulties hit us, that we don't let our minds go down unhelpful or unholy paths. It means that our confession in life is this. God, I live today for you, not gain. I live for worship. I choose not to worry. That's my goal. That's the calling. And that's what it means to really be a follower of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would... Untether us, that's what I prayed at the beginning. Literally, Lord, cut the the chains that bind us to the earth. I pray that for some, that cutting would happen as they know that their financial gap, their debt, their overwhelming sense of wanting more, and then they get there, a new relationship, a new girlfriend, a new boyfriend, and then they found out that two years later it was just as unsatisfying as the old one was, and the real problem is in the mirror. Oh, Lord, I pray that today you'd 
birth people into your kingdom, that they would see their need to turn from a, a worthless pursuit of things on the earth and that they would realize there's a bigger plan here. It's a bigger thing. It's called grace. Grace for forgiveness through Christ and grace to live every day. So Lord, draw people today by their mountain of debt. Draw them by their uncertainty of their future. Draw them to a certain and beautiful kingdom called grace. Lord, I pray that for those who worry, that you would help us to fight a new battle with new strength, with new vigor claim seven promises to pray them through and declare, I live for worship, not worry. Be quiet, heart, sit down and listen to the word of God. Oh Lord, help us to live for you, not gain. Help us to live for the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of earth. Help us today, Lord. So Lord Jesus, now help us to win the battle with gain and worry. Help us to live for God and for worship so we could be lights in the marketplace, lights in the world, and people whose allegiance to Christ is clear. We ask this in Jesus' name.